It's December 25th, and it's a happy day for baseball fans, no matter what your denomination is, because it's Ricky Henderson's birthday. And we're talking about that today with writer Melissa Lockhart on this episode of Locked On MLB. Locked On MLB, your daily MLB podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Locked On MLB, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. Thanks for making Locked On MLB your first listen, as we're available on all your free podcasting platforms. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. As you can tell by my lower third here, please feel free to call me Sully. Today's date is the 25th day of December, 2021. And it is indeed Ricky Henderson's birthday. And we are going to be joined by a wonderful writer and editor from The Athletic, Melissa Lockhart, who is also a huge A's fan and a huge Ricky Henderson fan. And we're going to talk a little bit about the greatness of Ricky Henderson and the perils of being a member of the Baseball Writers Association, especially when it comes down to voting for awards. We're available on all your podcasting platforms, and I'm on Twitter, at Sully Baseball, Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. The show is at Lockdown MLB Pods on both Twitter and on Instagram. So, as you can see behind me, the stockings are hung up with care, the tree is up, and everything. Uh, full disclosure, I am recording this on the 24th day of December. Now, I promised you all that I was going to do a show every day this week. And you know what? You know, to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, where he said, life finds a way. Sometimes life gets in the way. And I just, between traveling and rain and, you know, allergies and everything, I just, at finishing up my shopping for Ricky Henderson's birthday, I just didn't have the bandwidth. So I promise you, I'll make up you know, during the offseason. You will get uh, your fair share of Sully in the offseason. Uh, right now, Locked On has asked me to do three episodes a week, especially with the lockout and the offseason and everything. And you'll get three a week, but a couple of those weeks, I'll sprinkle in an extra one to make up for that extra time here. But we are doing one today. And the bulk of today's episode is going to be my interview with um, – Melissa Lockhart, who is a wonderful writer and was a terrific guest, talk about all sorts of A's things. I do want to talk about one quick thing, though, because I don't know what I'm going to get for Christmas. I don't. Um, and I, I people have asked me, what do you want for Christmas? And I have said a nap. I would like to take a nap. I'd like to take an undisturbed nap. I'd like to be able to close my eyes and sleep until my eyes open up. That's what I want for Christmas. I'm very easy to shop for. I don't need more stuff. I'm done with stuff. Now, there was a period in my life, however, where, of course, when I was younger, excuse me, I scratched my nose. When I was younger, they, um, you know, you wanted the latest Star Wars toy, you wanted this, you wanted that. I liked getting those T-shirt uniforms that you know, I used to get when I was a kid, where you'd open up, I got an Expos uniform, I got an A's uniform. Yeah, I got a Yankee uniform, too, and I would wear that. I didn't, you know, there was not... It wasn't as much tribalism at the time, and I loved wearing the different uniforms. Now, I'm going to tell you a little something about the greatest baseball Christmas present I ever got before we get into the um, interview 
later with with uh, Melissa Lockhart. Um, my family lived in Europe for a couple of years. For my third and fourth grade years, I lived in Geneva, Switzerland for my dad's work. And my mother had a whole library full of baseball books that she read when she was a little girl. My mom's older than me. And she read a lot of books from the 1950s about baseball. She grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. As a, When I was a kid, I thought all parents grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And my mom, when we moved to Europe, had me bring all of her old baseball books with her. And with that, I started consuming these books because this was 1981, 1982, okay? This was obviously before the internet. And I went, you couldn't really watch, you couldn't watch, no, really, you couldn't watch baseball. There was no baseball to watch in Europe. And you'd have to wait to see at the International Herald Tribune, you'd get the line scores. And that's, that's what I consumed those as an eight or nine years, eight, nine, 10 year old kid living there just trying to get baseball scores. But in order to get the thrill of games and uh, learning about baseball, I consumed all of my mom's books and I became an expert. I became a makeshift baseball historian. I couldn't stop reading them. And I shoved all that knowledge of baseball fandom and baseball history and who was great and who was not into my cranium. And it made me truly, truly love baseball history. It made me truly, truly love, you know, um, I, I got to know who won past World Series, who the great players were in the past. They were as real to me as any players playing at that particular time. Now, when we were in Europe, I would be reading these books, learning about the history of baseball. And, and mind you, when I'd be reading about it, it would be the equivalent of me reading the events of a game that took place earlier that day. I didn't know how these games turned out. And, and I, it became thrilling for me. Now, of all the, my mom's books that she had, this is one that she had, which was um, the official, for those who are on YouTube, I'm holding it up, the official encyclopedia of baseball. And this had all the players listed, the World Series results. Now, of course, uh, Sabermetrics fans would be horrified by how the um, how they were listed here. It would just be games played and either batting average or their win-loss record if they were a pitcher. But, uh, yeah, this is – you look at these and, you know, this is how detailed they were. Really, really detailed. But I consumed all this. And the part that I really loved at the end is they had the results of all of the – World Series that were done in line score form with a really fun recap of them. And they would have, and they were pretty, uh, they were pretty well-written and pretty expressive, well-written about the World Series results. Now, here's the problem. I was consuming these books, shoving them into my brain, and it ends the final World Series. This is, now, mind you, this is 1981 and 82. I'm reading this. The final World Series in this baseball encyclopedia is 1955. And the World Series entry begins 
This became the next year Brooklyn fans have been waiting for. It's about the Dodgers winning the World Series in Brooklyn. And so I had a absolute photographic memory of all of baseball ending in 1955. That was it. That's the end of the story. Roll credits. The Dodgers won the World Series, and they were happily ever after in Brooklyn, if you read the history of baseball the way that I did. And that's it. That's it. And I wanted more. I wanted to have it updated. I wanted to read where Willie Mays was with this young, exciting player. And I knew the Dodgers moved. I, I was familiar that the Dodgers were in Los Angeles, but there was this amazing history that happened after 1955. You know, I'd only read eight years of integration. And, you know, I got to know all these wonderful players. I got to read about Honus Wagner. I got to read about Rogers Hornsby and Walter Johnson and Carl Hubble and all these great players. But boom, 1955, stonk, that's it. And in Christmas of 1981, my father, who we lost this year, went back to America for a business trip and came back. And on Christmas, I got the new baseball encyclopedia. And this was updated to 1979. Gave me 24 new years to study. Imagine if you have baseballreference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth, and it shut off with 20 years. 20 years ago was, oh my God, 20 years ago was 2001. So the, the Diamondbacks World Series was it. That's the end of baseball. What happened since then? What happened since then? Then all of a sudden, it was like a tidal wave of new information. This is when I got fascinated by the A's winning those three World Series. I had no idea they did that. I got fascinated by Roberto Clemente. I had no idea who he was. All these great things, all these great events, I started shoving into my brain. And it's almost appropriate that it was up until 1979 because 1979 was the first year I really remembered the Red Sox, really remembered following baseball. The rule of seven, that's when I was seven years old. So up until that point, I it was all hazy memories or before I was born. But now my dad came back and with this, the greatest Christmas gift, I still have it. I still have it. The greatest baseball-related Christmas gift I ever got in my life. I got up to speed. I got up to speed. 1955 was not the ending. You know, I Marty McFly that to the future. And all of a sudden, I'm up to date. Now I can just move forward. And so, you know, it's been the first Christmas without my pop. I just wanted to say thanks, Dad, for the best Christmas gift I ever got, baseball-related. And I also want to say thanks, Mom, for letting me have all those books. I, I still have them. And I read them all. You know I read them all. And I consumed them all. And do you know what? It's a surefire bet that that's the reason why I became the kind of baseball player that I am now, a baseball fan that I am now.
didn't become a player at all. That would have been nice. I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm just going to tell you that if you want to make bets, go to Bet Online, which makes your number one spot for all your sports action this season. Head to the website or use the mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code LOCKDOWN to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, UFC, right down to your favorite Las Vegas casino game, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports, so take advantage of all these amazing offers available. Bet online is where the game starts. Okay, uh, Melissa Lockhart is a wonderful writer and editor for The Athletic. She's the founder of Oakland Clubhouse, and she's a member of the Bay Area chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America. We did an interview. I'll tell you, it's audio only. So if you're watching it on YouTube, you're just going to see some still photos. But it was a really fun interview that we did where we talked about all sorts of things, including our mutual love and respect for Ricky Henderson. So thank you for listening. And please, please, please enjoy this interview with Melissa Lockhart. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to bring in. So you're from are you from the Bay Area or you just you just have become immersed with the A's there? No, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, went to school uh, in the Midwest, uh, lived out east for a little while, and then came back uh, to the Bay Area about, I don't know, I guess it's been almost 20 years now, which is hard to believe. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've followed the team since, I guess, the early 80s, probably, I would say. So, okay, I was going to ask you, so you probably, you came in, like, with the A's through Billy Ball, probably, during mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the Ricky Henderson Mike Norris, Dwayne Murphy years. That was uh, yeah. Dwayne Murphy was my favorite player when they when they let him go. I remember crying about it. It was the first time I ever cried about a sports thing. <laughs> I think for me it was Louis Tiant leaving the Red Sox for the Yankees. I think that was it for me. But yeah, I. It's funny. I I have a, a weird fascination with the A's. I just thought I I even as a kid I thought it was such a weird sounding team name. But that team, if those of you who don't remember. The A's, after they had won their championships in the 70s, were basically run into the ground. They almost moved to Denver, and they hired Billy Martin, who turned this team around. They went from like 110 losses or something to getting to within three games of the World Series in 81. And that was a team where Billy Martin didn't realize he could go to the bullpen because every one of his starting pitchers just went nine every time. But that was uh, it was a really fun team. Yeah, I wonder what he would think about the starter. Uh, I mean, the uh, going with bullpen games and having openers. And I mean, it just that was the antithesis of that era for sure. Yeah, but I I will say one thing about Billy Martin, who is, I think, a person who has been of endless fascination with me. Uh, he has been, if you look at some of the games that he managed with the Yankees, like he brought in Sparky Lyle in the third inning of a game that he was managing, or he like would pull, he did, he, he was quick to pull pitchers. There, there was, he was a hard manager to nail down in mm-hmm. terms of his strategies. I mean, when he was managing in um, Detroit and he was managing in with the Yankees all the times, he would have guys go nine, but then he would also have a, like pull them. And he, he was, he was, he would always do what he thought was the best at that moment, even if it was a, a little haphazard. But yeah, those those A's teams who that was the rise of Ricky Henderson, yeah, right there, you know, the goat. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I, I've it's funny. I brought you aboard. And I said we're going to go down tangents, and here we are. We're about four minutes in, and we're already on our first tangent. But 
it's odd, and I want to get your take as someone who grew up with Ricky, both in his first time with the A's and the second time when he back from the Yankees. I actually think Ricky Henderson's underrated. And this sounds weird because he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, MVP, all this stuff. When people start listing who are some of the great offensive players of all time, you almost have to put Ricky at least in the top 10 in the history of baseball based on everything that he did as, as a player and for as long as he did. Yeah, he could really control every aspect of the game offensively. I don't think there are, you know, are too many baseball players that can basically be a quarterback of a team. And he was essentially the quarterback of every offense that he was part of. I mean, if he needed to hit for power, he hit for power. If he needed to just get on base, if he would walk and then just steal three bases in order to get in a run, he could do that too. And he, yeah, you're right. I mean, he did it not only so well, but for so long and for so many different eras of baseball too. I think that's also underrated in that he changed his game as the game was evolving and didn't just be one player for the entire time that he was in there. So um, yeah, he, he was incredible. And I think maybe people look at the stats and even can't appreciate how great he was, even just from the numbers, even though the numbers are so great. And just watching him day in and day out and that Toronto ALCS in 1989, I mean, just literally dominated a very good baseball team by himself. I think that was one of the more incredible things I've ever seen. And and when he got on base, he would, it was electric. I, my family moved to the Bay Area in 1987, and by 89, Ricky was back with Oakland. So I, I went to many, many games in the Oakland Coliseum seeing Ricky Henderson. And I actually feel badly for people who uh, who didn't get to see him play because, first of all, this is a guy when he would, like, he, he stole 130 bases one year. He, let, he stole 66 bases for the Oakland A's in 1998 when he was 39 years old. I mean, what, 20 leads the league now, but the, the people don't steal bases anymore. But there was a sense when he was on base. And this is the thing that I, I wish people, I'm not going to do be old man silly here, but I wish people could understand the excitement when he got on base, you're staring. When's Ricky going to go? Oh, yeah. And, and the, it, Yeah, I'm sorry. And I was going to say with the fingers, I mean, there was a whole thing to it. It wasn't just that he was on base. He would stride out there with the two feet together, then the one foot out, waggle the fingers, and he got in the head of the pitchers. And I think it was it Lloyd Mosby that I think had grown up in Oakland with him and had basically said to that Blue Jays pitching staff, just ignore him. He's going to get in your head and you're going to be destroyed midway through that series if you let him in your head. And they still, they, they couldn't help it because with those neon gloves when he's down there and they would just melt the moment he got on first base. And I, we lament that that's not as much a part of the game anymore. I don't know that anyone could ever come close to doing it how he did it, though. He was so absolutely unique in how he dominated with his legs. But I wonder if they would hold him back now. You know, I wonder yeah. if today's game, whether whether we would see that. I wonder if there is some – obviously there won't be someone like him, but if there would have been a, a Tim Raines or a Willie McGee, one of those people who would steal – tons of bases you know no one was as good as Ricky but someone who could have altered the game in that way I, I want to just say that two other things like the idea that when he would be on base and the pitcher would be start throwing fastballs obviously 
to try to make sure that yeah. you know he wasn't stealing. Well, imagine what that meant for the people batting behind him, whether it was Mattingly or Winfield, which were the Yankees, or Conseco, McGuire, Dave Parker, and all them. I mean, like they saw so many fat pitches because the the they knew what was coming. You weren't going to throw a slow breaking ball with with Ricky on first. Yeah, and Carney Lansford, he hit second in a lot, a lot of those teams behind Ricky, mm-hmm. too. And he was such a good number two hitter behind him because he, he'd shoot that right field gap and turn a lot of stolen base attempts into hit and runs. I mean, it'd be interesting to, to look back and see how many stolen bases maybe Ricky got taken away from the fact that Carney could kind of shoot that hole right there. But that sort of gamemanship you don't see as much anymore either. But I think the thing with Ricky is that he was so successful at such a high clip that it wasn't like he was inefficient on the bases. And I think that's what you see now is a, a need to be efficient. But he had to learn. And, and when his younger years, when he was stealing that many, he was getting thrown out a little bit more frequently. And, and it's the learning curve that I'm not sure players get a chance to do as much anymore. And, it, you know, I don't know what we would be missing out on and being able to see somebody do that kind of thing. Obviously, like you looked at like Billy Hamilton was the one that maybe was going to come up and do that a few years ago. But you have to get on first base in order to be able to steal second. Right. And that was of course the big issue there too so i have i have ricky's uh uh baseballreference.com which is the single greatest website in the history of the planet earth i have his i have his page up here and it's true when he stole 130 bases he got caught 42 times but later in his career like there was one year he stole 80 bases and got caught 10 times yeah or he, yeah. he stole 93 bases in his final year with the Yankees and got caught 13 times. I mean, they, so the, the, the ratio, it was worth it. When he stole the 66 bases at age 39, he only got caught 13 times. And, yeah, and that, that was a Billy Bean team too. So you know that the leash was already going to be there, right? And of course, because he had the, the personality where he was, he was flashy and flamboyant and he also had all the great quotes, a lot of the Ricky being Ricky stuff. I remember there was, it may have been in the Bill Mazeroski annual that they used to do every year. This is back before there was BaseballReference.com, kids, and you had to get magazines in March that had all the stats. And in my household, they, by the end of the year, they'd be ruffled on side because I'm always pouring through them as you're a year behind in all your stats at all times. And there was an interview they did with Ricky where they were kind of like saying, oh, he's being funny again because someone asked him about your batting average was a lot lower and he's this was when he was with the Yankees so it must have been like 86 or 87 and the interviewer said you know you, what do you think your batting average dropped this year what do you think about your lack of production and he said I don't look at my batting average I look at my on base percentage because to me if I get on base that's the equivalent of getting a double and it was truly all oh, that Ricky yeah. looking at his on-base percentage. When in reality, he was ahead of the curve. A lot of when he stole 130 30 bases, he walked 116 times. Right. You know, he walked 126 times uh, the year where he split between the Yankees and the A's in '89. Uh, and so he was actually ahead of the game in terms of the importance. He was a sabermetrics guy before anyone knew what that meant. Yeah. I mean, he's the guy that that entire theory is based on. That entire theory of offense is he's the platonic ideal. And I don't, I, I, I know that that's kind of weird to think because he's the all-time stolen base. But if you were going to draw up the perfect 
money ball player, it's Ricky Henderson. And it's not, I think, a coincidence that Ricky has for the last, you know, decade or so been a pretty key coach in the player development department for the A's. And he's still around all those players. And um, you watch him coach young minor leaguers in the backfields and the things that he teaches them and the things that he says, you realize his genius. I mean, this is easily one of the smartest baseball players yep. and that so much of it went on between his years as much as it did with his physical gifts because he outsmarted a lot of those teams and I think we didn't necessarily appreciate that how much he was thinking when he was out there back in those days but you really see it when he's coaching someone how much he really knows the ins and outs of everything in the game all right we'll get back to our conversation with Melissa Lockhart in just a minute but right now it's time to talk a little bit about built bars built bars are the best tasting protein bars out there you get the best of both worlds they taste like a candy bar they're decadent but they're low in calories sugar net carbs fat high in protein they got so many great flavors you like cherry barcia double chocolate cookies cream peanut butter brownie mint brownie or my personal favorite is raspberry and they give you that little extra fuel. They give you that little extra burst. And everyone has a favorite flavor. I personally love dipping them in my hot cocoa. And guess what? If you're into that marshmallowy flavor, that marshmallowy texture, you've got to get your hold. You've got to get a hold of and get your hold on and all the holding you can on Built Bar Puffs. They're light. They're fluffy. Marshmallowy through and through. Different flavors, all covered in chocolate. They taste so good, you won't believe they're filled with protein. Go to built.com, use promo code LOCK15 to get 15% off your order. Use promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at built.com. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Melissa Lockhart, a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America and a writer and editor for The Athletic. Now, I mentioned you're, you are a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Do you get a vote in the in for the for the awards, like for the Cy Young and the MVP and everything? Yeah. So I'm not yet at the point to vote for the Hall of Fame, but I have had uh, major award votes for the last couple of years. I was, uh, I had rookie of the year, AL rookie of the year this year. Um, so I was the the person who <laughs> voted for Wander Franco, which I know everybody thought, well, he didn't play enough games, but to have that kind of impact in the, in the amount of time that he played, um, he, he got my vote, but that was as strong a, a rookie class as I'd seen in a very, very long time. So yeah, it, was, it was very difficult. It, it, it was many hours of going back and forth between a lot of really talented players to, to make that vote. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, there's no, I have a feeling that when someone may have, bristle to the fact that Franco only um, played what he, I'm actually going to look that up right now. He played in, um, I'm back at baselreference.com and he, well, he played 70 games. So it's not like he he was brought up. It's not like he was a September call up. Right. So yeah. And he, and his impact, especially when the, the Rays put on the aft thrusters in the second part of the year, that's not such a that's not an outrageous vote. I'm and I find it strange, by the way, that Rand, you know Randy Orozarena won, and he had a wonderful season. That's a that's a fine pick as rookie of the year. It's interesting he won the rookie of the year, and he played in his third postseason. Right. Yeah. He's had one of the most unusual starts to a career, I think, of any young player. And in, 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 I mean, I guess in young is kind of a relative term, too, because he's almost a veteran at this point in terms yeah. of his age. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, he'll be a really fun answer to a trivia question about 20 years from now, I think. <laughs> I have a feeling, though, that like, remember, 
Ken Griffey Jr. didn't win the Rookie of the Year. And people go, well, how is that possible? It went to Greg Olson? Well, Greg Olson had a good year in 89. But I have a feeling that when all is said and done, people say, Wander Franco didn't win Rookie of the Year? What? And you can say, well, it wasn't because of me. Don't don't blame me. Yeah. Well, Wally Joyner's still upset about Jose Canseco winning it in 86. So well, Mark, <laughs> you know? Mike Greenwell's still upset that he didn't win the MVP. Right. But that's a... That's a completely <laughs> different story. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what, like, some of the strangest. I mean, it's funny that one of the biggest shake my head MVPs, like, it's so obvious it was one person, they gave it to another person. The person who got it unjustly is one of my all time favorite players, <laughs> is when Mo Vaughn won the MVP over Albert Bell. Right. When it was so clear that writers just didn't like Albert Bell and Mo Vaughn was this big, fun, cute teddy bear of a player. Everyone loved it was impossible not to root for Mo Vaughn. And Albert Bell was this angry, surly dude. And Mo Vaughn was this fun, charismatic guy. And Mo Vaughn had a wonderful year. Yeah. But Mo Vaughn wasn't even the MVP of the Red Sox. Tim Wakefield was the MVP of that Red Sox team. And Albert Bell was so clearly the best player in the American League that year. And, you know, Vaughn won it. I'm like, I'm okay. Now yeah. I'm trying to get Mo Vaughn on the show. So <laughs> I don't want to speak like, I don't want to say he should, you know, but I think even if you gave him truth serums, yeah, Albert Bell, he was, it's Albert Bell. Yeah. But, well, uh, so I think uh, for me, it's uh, Ichiro winning it in 2001. I mean, as fabulous as Ichiro was that season and obviously the runaway rookie of the year, Jason Giambi was the MVP by a lot, but I think most writers were like, he's not resigning with his team and this is going to be weird. So we're going to give it to the other guy <laughs> and let him sign with the Yankees and not have to also, you know, accept an MVP with a different team. I have what's called the, the Coen brothers rule, which is if someone's already won an award, uh, I can't get mad if they don't win. Right. Yeah. If they don't pad the resume. But so like yeah. I could say. And Ichiro's could totally... the better player all time. So that's. Yeah. That, that he's a Hall of Famer. <laughs> and when someone's like, how could you not have given him? But well, he's already won it. So it's the Coen Brothers rule. How did, you know, this not win? Well, they, they have they have so many Oscars. It's right. okay. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll make it. They each have four Oscars. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but uh, so that's uh, that's great. I, I've I've always, you know people like me always think about our votes, but you actually vote. <laughs> so yeah, I have to say it's uh, it's not as fun to actually make the vote as it is to think about it because as soon as you make it, you think, oh, everyone's going to hate this vote and then you're defending it forever and ever and it was probably just easier to be the one that was criticizing than the one that's making them. So oh, I, I don't know if I'll actually get to that Hall of Fame vote, but um, I'm not sure I'd look forward to it. <laughs> Oh, by the way, I am not looking forward to the people who have to vote in this year's ballot for the no, Hall of Fame. No, it's a rough, it's a rough year to vote, I think, uh, yeah, for a lot I mean, of different reasons. Yeah, you know, so there's just so many. There's so many names on there that you look at and you go, like, well, obviously they should be right, but, but yeah, exactly, but, yeah, you know. Yeah. And part of me just wants to say, either keep them on, either vote them in or vote them out. Right. Like now, like either have them fall off the ballot with 4% or put them in the Hall of Fame because yeah. we're, I'm tired of this conversation. No, I you agree. I, I think they it, they should almost just have a special vote for anyone who was associated. I mean, it's hard because it's like tangentially, how do you pick some of these names that weren't even named in the report or whatever? But, yeah. but I, I, it's almost like the kind of 
special ballots for the you know veterans committee or whatever like just give that its own vote and then try to clean it out because it, it does get really messy and then it also makes it harder for some of these other players who probably do have legitimate cases to even be paid attention to, you know, yeah. when you're trying to figure out whether you're going to have A-Rod in there or not, you know, so. Um, like we're, we sh- we're not even going to be debating uh, like a Todd Helton because right. we're still, we're still trying to figure out should Barry Bonds I know. Which and, is, I mean, and, and <laughs> Roger Clemens and Alex Rodriguez be right. in the hall of fame. Like right. going, okay. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're still I mean, talking. That. We were talking about watching Ricky. I mean, it's like, I think sometimes it's like people forget what it was like to watch those players play, to watch Barry Bonds play, to watch Roger Clemens at his height pitch. I think that the idea of them not being Hall of Famers, whatever you think of them as people, the idea of them not being Hall of Famers is like mind boggling if you sat there and watched them game after game because they were so clearly the best players you'd ever seen. You know, the uh, I loved Manny Ramirez when he was with the Red Sox and I said he was part Joe DiMaggio, part Gilligan. You know, there was a sense of like, he could be this breathtakingly brilliant force of nature as a hitter. And then you wanted to hit him like right. Skipper would hit Gilligan constantly. Um, I've also equated Manny Ramirez to a trip to Las Vegas because yeah. when it starts, it's so much fun. Right. And then when it, keeps going for a little too long you're like oh man this is we we shouldn't be here anymore this is this is getting bad and then when it's over you think okay thank god that's over but it was fun right we had fun right and (laughs) and whether we're talking about him in cleveland or boston or los angeles it was always started off so much fun and then got to be oh boy we gotta get rid of this guy we gotta get rid of this guy but um but what he did as a player was oh, unbelievable. Yeah, one of the best right-handed hitters I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, yeah. no, no question. Like, there's yeah. just, yeah. So you you look at your unanimous Hall of Fame winner is Mariano Rivera, who of course is a Hall of Famer. But like, you know, you're you're thinking that's unanimous, and then you don't have Barry Bonds, who is the greatest hitter of all time. I mean, it. I don't know. It's hard to. It's hard to put your your arms around what we're trying to decide here exactly. I'm you know, just glad Rivera's... it's me. Yeah, I'm just glad it's me BSing in my basement as opposed right. to actually having a vote. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's a limited. You only can vote for so many, so it's not like you can go down that ballot and be like, "I'm going to pick 15 of 20 or whatever it is of the guys that you think." Because, um, so you know, I just I think um, I think it's become hard and it's become stressful, I think, for the people that vote because they get so vilified for making whatever votes they make and then they feel like they have to justify it and then the story becomes about them instead of about the players. And it, it, it's almost made it what it shouldn't be, which is just honoring the greatest players in the sport. So, um, yeah, I've got a ways to go and I probably won't get there. So I think it'll be all right. <laughs> well, you're closer than me. That's for dang sure. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. And hey, by the way, uh, Jason Burke, who's a friend of the podcast, is the host of Locked on A's. He's a new papa. Congratulations, buddy. And I'm going to be filling in for him on Locked on A's. I got three new episodes of Locked on MLB for next week and three episodes of Locked on A's. So for those of you who said, hey, how come Sully didn't do all these episodes? He promised. Guess what? You can get me six times tomorrow, uh, starting next week. Three. Uh, there, there's no, there are no, like, oh, I posted this and that. I posted an episode of Lockdown will be on both. No, 
Brand new episodes of Locked On A's hosted by yours truly and brand new episodes of Locked On MLB hosted by your boy Sully. Is that what I'm calling myself? I almost got, I almost went into a Locked On Bets uh, read right there. I'm a little groggy. By the way, listen to Locked On Bets hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis from Lee Sterling. Make that your second listen as you make us your first listen as we're available for free at all your podcast platforms. I think I got through all my read-throughs today. Well, guess what? If you celebrate Christmas, great. If you don't celebrate Christmas, have a wonderful holiday or a day off or whatever you're doing, and we could all celebrate Ricky Henderson's birthday. And thanks so much, uh, Melissa Lockhart, who is at Melissa Lockhart. Uh, her last name is spelled L-O-C-K-A-R-D. And follow her work at The Athletic. This has been Locked On MLB for the 25th day of December, 2021. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Ho, ho, ho! You can call me Sully.